Hello and welcome back for another exciting episode with Nailed It Podcast. Uh, we have a great talk ahead for you guys. It's on multi-ligamentous knee injuries. Before we get too far, let me introduce myself again, guys, just in case you forgot. Uh, I am Dr. Jay Fix. I am one of the one half of the amazing team that we have here at Nailed It Ortho. We also have Oh, we have Dr. Cole here, you know, the guy, the, the voice you all love to hear. Uh, I'm back, back again, the other, <laughs> the other half of uh, the Nailed Orthopedic Podcast. And we have a, a, a really good um, episode for you all today, talk about multi-ligamentous knee injuries. And I guess I'll just go ahead and hop into it. Our, our guest of the day is actually Dr. Philip Williams, who uh, actually met at AOS uh, when we were interns in, in Vegas. Uh, when we when we had went for that first first week, I actually met him for the first time there, and it was great reconnecting with him for this episode. Uh, but a little bit more about Dr. Philip Williams. He did his uh, med school at Harvard. Uh, he did his uh, residency in orthopedics, of course, at uh, uh, HSS at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He did a fellowship in sports at the Kerlin Job uh, Orthopedic uh, Sports Medicine Institute, and he's over there on staff right now in UT over in over in Texas. Um, so guys, you know, stay in tune. You know, it's a great episode um, about multi-ligamentous knee injuries, how to work them up, um, things you should be on the lookout for, imaging to get. So uh, without further ado, you all enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Williams, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. Thank you for coming on and, and speaking and uh, sharing your expertise. We are glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. So uh, what we always like to do is when we first start out, we kind of want to ask a couple of questions just to get to know you as a person. And, uh, and then we'll proceed into the case, uh, which we're speaking about some fun stuff today, some knee dislocations and some multi-ligamentous injuries. Uh, so the people will have some some good things to listen to. Uh, but just to kind of start out general, uh, who, Dr. Williams, who is your, your favorite music artist? You know, the, the artist that you can listen to all day without getting tired. Actually, it's Miles Davis. I'm actually a pretty big jazz fan. And um, it's funny you mention that because I recently got a turntable uh, and I'm starting to collect more and more jazz records. So... Uh, without a doubt, it would be Miles Davis because you feel like he is one of the quintessential jazz artists who revolutionized jazz almost every time he put out an album. So that's the one artist I can listen to all day long and not get bored because all this stuff is so different. Oh, man, that's awesome. Uh, I like that. I like the turntables, too. I might, I might <laughs> venture into that one day. Yep, yep. It's, uh, it's had a resurgence, but for good reason, I think. Nice. Are, are you one of the uh, one of the doctors that if you um, you know if one of your colleagues or residents pass by early enough in the morning they'll suddenly start to hear the um, probably on a Friday maybe start hearing the the jazz music playing in the background or anything like that? Well, you know I play a bunch of music in the OR. I actually play hip hop in the OR. So there we not, go. What's that? I said there yeah, we go. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the jazz is more when I'm in my office trying to relax and, um, you know, wind down. So usually when I'm operating, I want to keep the energy up and keep everyone entertained. So 
that's my other awesome yeah so outside of uh music do you have any uh, favorite hobbies that you're into as well probably running um i ran track in college and i started doing kind of more long distance stuff i was a sprinter in college i did, did uh, hurdles and kind of four by four relays but i transitioned to kind of marathons and longer distance running after college and uh during residency and med school so i say running and then you know i play golf every once in a while when I get a chance, but it's kind of hard with all that. Uh, and a young family, I have three little girls. So that I would say occupies most of my time, uh, happily, um, taking care of my girls and kind of hanging out with them. So right now my, my family is one of my biggest hobbies, I would say. Oh, that's a beautiful story. I like it. Yeah. What, you know, the, the, the golf is something that I'm actually interested in getting into. Um, of course, right now, uh, kind of starting residency, there's not a whole lot of time. Uh, mm-hmm. Any advice for someone who's just kind of interested in uh, delving into golf a little bit in his spare time? Do, do you have any advice on that? Hey, golf is kind of one of those things that you, unless you are consistent with it and practice, you know, just like any craft, unless you're consistent and deliberately practice on a regular basis, it's hard to really get better. But, um, you know, I played a couple times every once in a while through residencies. I would say one thing that helps is taking a lesson every once in a while, kind of uh, get a lesson, learn the basics, and then whenever you get a chance, go out to a driving range and hit some balls. Uh, actually, during residency, one of my attendings uh, gave me a great gift of a couple golf lessons. That kind of helped a lot. But definitely get some fundamentals down. So you at least know that every time you go out and play, however infrequent it might be during residency. Nice. Now the big question, Dr. Williams are now, are you any good? That's, that's the next big, big <laughs> question. Uh, yeah. Next question. Next question. <laughs> it's not always straight, but it gets down to the hole. You know, I, I, okay. I, I my putts. So uh, I guess that's the goal, but I get my shots here and there. Hey, that's what matters, right? <laughs> okay, good deal. Yeah, yeah. Try to make it happen every once in a while. Okay, yeah, Dr. Williams, with this being a ortho podcast, we have to ask at least one thing that's ortho-related. And um, just curious, do you have a favorite uh, surgery case to do? Favorite case would probably be um, ACL. And, uh, I mean, I say that because I really gained a better appreciation as to all the intricacies that go into it after I finished all my training. And, um, you know, when you're in residency and fellowship, you kind of follow along with the attending and things kind of just fall in place because that attending has done it you know, hundreds of times. But, when you are doing it on your own, you kind of realize there's all these subtle things that have to happen in terms of the placement, in terms of the graft harvest. But the surgery alone is one thing, but I really get satisfaction from the patients because they're usually active patients who, you know, had an injury in a sport and they're just looking to get back. So I'd say it's a great operation, but it's even better when you see the patient back to their sport, playing football or what have you, several months later. So 
I'd say from the beginning, the surgery to the rehab, to the return to sport, it's kind of one of the best operations that uh, we have at our disposal in, in at least sports medicine right now. That That is perfect. That's actually a, a perfect segue into our topic for today. <laughs> um, so ask, quick story, I actually have my ACL reconstructed too. So I know how it feels to be on the other side. So yeah, I, th- that's great. I love that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Get into our case for the day. So our case, so say we have a uh, 30-year-old male who uh, is now status post a motor vehicle collision. He comes in with knee pain. Uh, the emergency department calls and says he has an obvious deformity of the knee. Uh, x-rays are obtained, which shows that he has an anterior knee dislocation. Now, if we could, before we get to ahead of ourselves, could you kind of take us back and tell us like what a knee dislocation is and kind of these ligamentous injuries that happen? Right. So a knee dislocation is obviously the result of a very violent injury or forceful impact where the posterior, the tibia translates mostly posterior to the femoral condyle or either lateral or medial. And the only way that happens is if multiple ligaments get disrupted in the knee because they're the ACL and PCL are some of the more uh, important stabilizers in the knee. So in order for the knee to actually dislocate, you need to disrupt multiple ligaments to get that knee out of the uh, reduced state. But I would say many times when a patient comes in with a questionable knee dislocation, if it really is truly emergent, you actually may not even have x-rays because the knee is so... Um, the deformity is so obvious that you really almost should call ortho right away before you even obtain x-rays because it's obvious from the mechanism and from the appearance of the leg that you can, that you can just call ortho to reduce the knee even before x-rays are obtained sometimes if it's that apparent or if the patient appears to have such a limb threatening um, state at the time. So Many times you could have x-rays, and of course, it's always great to obtain x-rays anytime you have trauma, but in a very truly emergent situation where there's an obvious deformity, sometimes you just have to reduce the obvious deformity before you even um, obtain x-rays. In this, in this case, I would say it's kind of unique in that aspect. Okay. And so, say we have this patient, we're, we're in the ED now, and this, this comes in, you see the obvious deformity there, and uh, excruciating pain. Um, kind of how would, can you walk us through how you would handle this, go, go forth handling this patient's care? Well, first, as in any trauma, you really have to assess the ABCs. So it becomes like any other trauma, airway, breathing, circulation, just make sure there's nothing else, obviously, uh, injured, uh, because many times if they're involved in motor vehicle accident, there can be some other, uh, obvious injuries that aren't really that apparent to you at the time. But, uh, you know, assuming that there is no other obvious trauma and everything is checked out with the first trauma survey, the initial trauma survey, the way you approach these patients, you have to get them relaxed in order to reduce the knee. So you have to talk to your emergency room physician or get an anesthesiologist to sedate the patient in order to get them relaxed enough to actually reduce the knee because they're going to be spasming. They're in a lot of pain from this obvious big traumatic event. So one of the first things you do is just try to get them sedated to um, 
get the knee back in place. So what what is the reduction technique that you that you use for these uh, knee knee dislocations? So anytime you reduce any um, dislocation, whether it's a knee, shoulder, um, elbow, you want to recreate the deformity. So um, you're going to slowly extend them while kind of pulling um, their. So it's usually the tibia is posterior. So you want to slowly extend them while pulling the tibia anterior um, and pulling traction at the same time. Usually I do it with another person. Well, pretty much all the time I have to have someone else holding um, the thigh underneath their thigh. Uh, so the other, another person is holding traction underneath their thigh, kind of stabilizing that while I slowly extend the knee while pulling the tibia anteriorly to basically uh, disengage the tibia from the posterior aspect of uh, the femur. So uh, someone's pulling under the thigh, kind of holding the thigh stable while I extend and pull the tibia anterior. And usually it's a pretty uh, dramatic clunk when it clunks back into place. Um, It's, you know, very satisfying clunk and a snap back in place right away when that happens. Right. Um, but, um, I mean, sorry, I'll back up, but as far as initially surveying the patient, you always want to check their pulses and their neurovascular exam before and after the reduction. So you want to check their, uh, pulses, popliteal pulse, their dorsalis pedis pulse and the posterior tibialis pulse, uh, just to make sure there is no vascular or neurovascular compromise because very often that's what happens with these injuries because if you imagine the tibia has been posteriorly dislocated and the structures that it impinges upon are the popliteal artery uh, as well as the tibial nerve Um, so those structures are put on stretch that would be kind of the first thing you do before you reduce the patient then immediately after you reduce the patient uh, after you reduce the patient, many times if patients had some degree of neuropraxia or some degree of you know, tingling or slightly diminished pulses before the dislocation, after you reduce them, many times they'll have immediate um, relief in their paresthesias or they'll say, oh, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit better. The, uh, my toes are perking up a little bit. You can notice the cap refills but as uh, improving. Uh, but those are... I would say the most important aspects of the physical exam before and after your reduction maneuver. Right. So if after post reduction, if you do that and then you check your, you know, you check your vascular status and you check your ABIs and, and it's point and it turns out to be 0.8, what would be the next step that, that we would take in that situation? Oh yeah. ABIs are important before, um, after the reduction, uh, is obtained because it gives you sort of a quick and dirty um, snapshot of their vascular status. And if anything is compromised in terms of their uh, vasculature. So, and I'm pretty aggressive at getting a CT angiogram if I have any question of uh, vascular compromise. So uh, ABI less than nine or anything like that, I would definitely get them a CT angiogram and get vascular um, on board to evaluate their vascular uh, tree and make sure they don't have any um, clotting of the vessels or kinking of the 
vessels just um, to the popliteus or popliteal artery or right near the popliteal artery. So that would be the first thing you do immediately after the reduction is get the ABIs. If it, if at any point you think it is questionable, just get a CT angiogram uh, to evaluate their vasculature. And, you know, many, many centers actually have good uh, MR angiography where you can see the vessels on MR and you're most likely going to get an MR anyway to assess their ligament. So you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, but um, you know, I, I sometimes feel a lot more comfortable getting a CT angiogram uh, because the vascular surgeons are a little bit more comfortable uh, many times in that situation looking at a CT angiogram. So I do a CT angiogram in my, for my preference too. So. Right. And they could also find any uh, subtle um, sub fractures that you may have missed on your initial survey or initial x-ray if you had. So kind of CT angiogram is a good way to go um, after a questionable ABI. Right. And and I had another question because I remember I was, I was doing some questions on this and I, I think there was, there was some case, like there was a case where, you know, the patient came in, they had an obvious uh, knee dislocation and the distal extremity was cold and pulseless and then they reduced it and got an ABI of like 0.7. So is there, is there a point where you would skip and go straight to the operating room or would you still, you know, get the CTA right then and there? I mean, I say um, the benefit of the CTA is knowing exactly where the uh, vascular injury is. Um, and that can help sort of the vascular colleagues to figure out where to do their bypass if they need to do it. Um, but, um, you know, there is something to be said that, you know, any waste of time is threatening for the limb, but, you know, CT angiogram, I think is fast enough where you can just get it done and go straight to the OR. But if anyone shows up like that, you should be really, um, kind of, um, getting the OR ready. And, um, many times you can have CT angiogram within the operative suite if you're at a vascular uh, OR. So um, you can always do it that way, but it should only be a quick tool to know which vascular um, tree is affected and where you need to bypass. Right. Okay. That That's great. I think that's a good, important step. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also say, so, you know, after you have this patient um, reduced, uh, more than likely, I'm guessing, you know, you, more than likely you would have done that under, like you say, under some conscious sedation yeah, or something possibly. like that. Very, uh, very relaxed. Um, are you testing, like, at that point, before uh, CT, angiogram, or anything further, are you testing for a ligamentous damage at that at that point? I mean, it's, it's really hard to examine these patients because they're so uncomfortable. Um, Many times it's kind of obvious um, which ligaments are out. You know, if they're posteriorly out, you know, their ACL at least is out. But you can get a very kind of quick exam once they're reduced and comfortable. Uh, but I wouldn't push like your typical uh, uh, Lachman posterior drawer as hard as you would, you know, in someone in office, I would just get a very general idea. Um, the collateral exam is a little bit easier to do in that setting uh, to determine if they have an MCL or LCL. Uh, but as far as um, the ACL, PCL, it's a little bit more obvious if they have that injury and then the 
MCL, LCL, you can kind of um, get a, a quick feel, but um, a lot of your um, diagnoses will be aided by advanced imaging like MRI. So, you know, you, you don't want to, um, if you have, if you are a little nervous about their vascular status or nervous uh, nerve status, you don't want to start disrupting things by being a little bit too uh, aggressive on your range of, on your uh, range of motion and physical exam after the reduction. So I would say just a very kind of gentle exam to get a, a brief sense of what you think is out. And then the MRI will really uh, confirm all those findings for you as well. Okay. Uh, and another question I had, or I guess kind of since we're on the topic in general, could you, could you go over kind of the, the ligamentous uh, instability tests, like for, you know, for the PCL, MCL, LCL, maybe like the posterior, you know, lateral corner, like how, how these tests perform and kind of what we're looking for for the people that are listening? Sure. So the ACL is tested with the knee a couple different ways. So you can test the ACL. There's something called a Lachman test where you basically perform an anterior directed force on the tibia while stabilizing the thigh. Um, and you could do that by either holding the thigh with your hand or putting your knee under the thigh if they have a very big thigh um, or, and using your other hand to do a quick post uh, anterior directed force on the tibia. And you're, you're trying to feel and assess one, the amount of translation that the ACL moves. Uh, and it's created by, uh, you know, one, two or three being a millimeter, uh, 10 millimeters or so. So, and uh, you're also grading the firmness of the stop that you feel when the tibia translates. So, you know, a firm endpoint feels like a very sharp stop whenever you kind of jerk the, the tibia anterior and um, a soft endpoint that's not really distinct. And then some patients just don't have any endpoint. You can kind of just move their tibia very easily. And that's, sign of course of uh, very significant instability in their knee so that's the Lachman test um, and 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 that really um, actually tests particularly the uh, posterior lateral bundle of the ACL as you know there's two bundles of the ACL um, and the anterior drawer which is when the patients are flexed about 90 degrees uh, that tests the anterior medial bundle um, and that allows the tibia again to be assessed by doing an anterior uh, directed force. And that also you feel the amount that the, the, the tibia translates anteriorly, but that's more um, related to sort of where the uh, femoral condyles are in relation to the um, tibia. You also get a sense of how much movement there is. And while you have them flex, you can also do a posterior directed force, which is the, uh, testing for the PCL, and it's the same way you want to test how far back the uh, tibia moves in relation to the femur, and that gives you a sense of how stable the PCL is. Uh, and lastly, for the ACL, there's a pivot shift where you are basically internally rotating the tibia while uh, flexing the femur, and that is pretty much uh, almost reducing the knee and uh, unlocking it from the femoral condyle as you push it up. 
Uh, and that also gives you a sense of the, um, the, the stability of the ACL. Um, if it's torn, you get a, a, a very sort of obvious clunk as you flex the knee up and internally rotate it. Moving on to sort of more um, advanced testing for other ligaments or the posterior lateral corner, which is another structure that's very important in the stability of the knee. Um, people classically talk about the dial test where uh, you externally rotate the tibia um, at 30 and 90 degrees. But um, I mean, honestly, it's, it's a good testing question where you'll be asked this in a testing situation, but the difficulty with the dial test, because the patient is prone, it's not a good test or it's not a very uh, useful test for clinicians when they are um, considering how to treat a patient uh, because it's it can't be necessarily replicated in the OR uh, because you're not going to have a patient prone and evaluating them prone um, to decide um, the stability of their posterior lateral corner. So a lot of clinicians actually do this um, with them supine as well, which is where you're external rotating the tibia uh, at 30 and 90 degrees. And that can give you a very sort of uh, rough estimate on the stability of their uh, posterior lateral corner. But what I actually like doing is uh, basically uh, doing, it's more like a posterior lateral spin where you flex the tibia um, flex the knee and do a posterior lateral kind of spin, almost like an external rotation spin to the tibia. Uh, and that gives you an assessment of uh, the stability of the posterior lateral corner. If it really opens up big when you spin an external, do an external rotation uh, while the knee is flexed, that tells you the posterior lateral corner is out pretty much at that point. So, and that is easy to replicate in the OR. Uh, if you're testing a patient right before you take them to the OR. So that's why that test in many people's hands are a little bit more uh, easy to replicate both in the exam room setting and the OR setting. Okay, awesome. And also, Dr. Williams, so I know our case is specifically talking about uh, more of a high-energy mechanism, but I know in the literature there is some uh, – reports that say that states, of course, there are some low energy mechanisms to watch out for as well, such as certain, certain sports, um, sports fans. And one that, it, that kind of stands out to me is the Willie McGahee injury. And in, uh, it was a bowl game a couple of years ago, but I remember that one being kind of popular because it was caught on TV. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, he had a knee dislocation from a tackle. Uh, but I've even yeah, seen that yeah. some um, obese patients can uh, – uh, have their knee dislocated just from walking. I also read maybe uh, there's it's a certain mechanism with trampoline injuries and different things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but my question is, does the management or, yeah, pretty much the management, does the management change at all if it is a low mechanism injury versus this a high mechanism injury? Yeah. Uh, first, I mean, I would, I would, I would argue that these football injuries are actually high, high energy mechanisms. I mean, um, the collisions that they have in football, especially uh, college NFL are really high collision uh, sports. So I would, I would classify that as a high energy, the low mechanism energies are like you, like you mentioned the obese patients who pretty much, you know, fall off a curb, twist their knee 
and uh, they have a knee dislocation or multi-leg uh, dislocation. So the management is a little bit different in that situation where uh, you're just making sure they have a functional leg. Um, you know, many times they can be treated initially in an X fix and kind of see how things scar in after that. If um, they really are uh, very obese and a poor uh, candidate for reconstructive uh, surgery at that time. But uh, I would say that's very um, rare that you would not at least try to attempt some kind of reconstructive um, procedure on uh, one or if not both ligaments, if they're actually dislocated. Um, if there are multiple ligaments dislocated, you, you definitely want to try to dislo- to uh, reconstruct them. But for some of these kind of low demand patients, uh, you know, if the, if it's just the ACL uh, out and, you know, maybe one of the collateral ligaments out, you may want to see how they do in an X-fix initially uh, and then uh, decide in a delayed fashion if you need to do a ACL reconstruction or if they have, you know, the, the typical ACL, PCL and another collateral out, you may have to do uh, the surgery with the knowledge that, they are at a higher risk for complications. And, um, you know, if you talk about that beforehand with the patient are very upfront and open with it, it is usually understandable, but, uh, you know, you have to take care of the patient as well as you can. So, uh, definitely is, a, a um, something you have to keep in mind when you take care of these patients that they're not, um, as straightforward as some of the high energy or athletic population. So, it can right. be difficult. All right, and, and just to just to reiterate, uh, so what in what situations would you be putting the, these patients in uh, external fixator? Really, for many times, if they have a vascular injury, um, that in and of itself would want you to X fix it to keep it stable. Um, and many times, you can go in right after or right before the vascular surgeons do their job. So an external fixator is a great way to just keep the knee stable while um, the vascular injury has been repaired and you don't want to disrupt any of that. And these injuries for the most part can be repaired or or most likely reconstructed in a delayed fashion. So if a patient has an external fixator, that's because of most likely they had a vascular injury that was more pressing than the ligamentous injury. Uh, so that's when I would uh, have the external fixator uh, put on. Okay. So, so we've, we've kind of, we've gone over, um, we've gone over when we close reduce the patient uh, and we got over kind of when we are doing X fix. Now I, I read something a little bit about if you, if we do a reduction and we see like a presence of, of, of a fur between like the medial condyle and the tibial condyle, uh, like mm-hmm. some puckering in the skin, uh, when would there be an, like an indication for open reduction of a, of a knee dislocation? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, you know, that kind of buttonholing of basically the femur through the medial capsule is an indication basically open the joint up and reduce um, the femur, which basically buttonholes through the the knee capsule immediately. So I, I would say that would be one of the biggest indications for open reduction of the dislocation because it's not going to 
um, reduce close when that happens because um, because of sort of the 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 um, um, the sort of like almost like a vacuum effect that goes into the knee, you're not going to be able to extract that capsule that gets interposed in the femoral uh, tibial uh, articulation without some kind of open technique. So that's right. a good uh, sign as soon as you see the patient, if you see that, to let someone know that you need to get to the OR to get it back in place. Okay. And, and how often are do you see nerve injuries associated with uh, knee dislocations, and, and I guess which nerve is is injured when you do see it? I, I mean, I would say, um, you know, I don't, I don't have um, off the top of my head, I don't have a particular uh, percentage, but I would right. say it's higher. It's it would be higher than you would think. Uh, one at one level or the other in terms of the severity, I mean, almost 50% of them, because they may have, they may have a slight de- degree of neuropraxia, like just a little bit of tingling. If you're very careful with your exam, they may just say, you know, I feel a little bit of tingle, but I feel everything. And there, there are a lot of uh, patients who come in with some kind of uh, neurovascular or neurologic issues. And usually it's in the perineal nerve distribution. And um, so, they have they can have just a degree of neuropraxia where things get better once they get reduced or you know have complete foot drop which i've seen many times they have foot drop after the um before the reduction and after the reduction right. and uh, many times you, you may have to do a neurolysis of the perineal nerve or do a nerve explanation of the perineal nerve and uh sometimes nerve grafting is necessary in that situation as well if their perineal nerve is affected to uh, a, a large degree. But, um, you know, the vascular and nerve uh, aspect of this injury is quite substantial at times. Right. And I, I think I was reading somewhere that, you know, if they have like the complete perineal nerve is completely out, it's a year or two out, and they still have, you know, just a complete uh, foot drop, that sometimes they do. Uh, Tendon transfers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, basically, you could do a tendon transfer to to hook into the tibial nerve. Or sorry, the tibial uh, tibialis anterior to get your uh, foot to basically dorsiflex, and that's pretty much the standard uh, of care if you have an old perineal nerve injury that hasn't responded. Uh, to either neurolysis or um, a nerve transfer where they take part of the serial nerve many times and transfer to the perineal nerve. Uh, but the perineal nerve is unfortunately the nerves that really doesn't recover well from, from an injury. So um, it's unfortunate, but uh, there are other kind of salvage techniques if you still have a foot drop, such as the nerve transfer, as you mentioned. Okay. And just um, also just kind of always – wonder if uh, the things we kind of learn are valuable to you clinically. Is there any classifications of knee dislocations that you uh, kind of follow a little bit more, more so than others? Yeah, I mean, I guess the most popular one is the KD, but um, like a lot of classifications, clinically, not, not all of them are all that useful. Uh, it's good sort of to know what they mean, but um, more so for a lot of um, clinical applications, I would say that classification systems are good to know, but not 
always clinically relevant or applicable. And for um, ACL or for needle dislocations, uh, there's a KD classification that is well cited. Uh, but I would say for most clinicians, we just talk about what is dislocated uh, in term, instead of what the classification is, because that in our minds just tells us kind of what the mechanism was and what the patient is dealing with. So I would say it's good to know the classification scheme, but uh, clinically we talk more functionally about what is actually torn. Okay. Good to know, sir. And I know we, we have been mentioning treatment throughout this talk, uh, just kind of scattered mm-hmm. throughout. Um, but I just want to know kind of your, and I know it's a lot of different, ways to do this as well. I just wanted to get your um, kind of your treat, your management plan when it comes to the actual surgery that takes place for these patients and also your protocol for rehab because I know that's important as well. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, assuming uh, you know, mostly one of the cruciates is out, uh, something intra-articular is out, I like to basically take them to the OR, um, you know, within a few weeks or so. I don't like to wait too long. Uh, I know a lot of people like to wait until some of the capsule is healed um, because that allows you to do your arthroscopic procedure a little bit easier without fluid escaping. Uh, But if you wait too long, uh, like four or five weeks, things get to be a little bit too scarred in uh, and make your uh, approach a little bit difficult. Uh, if you are dealing with like a posterior lateral corner injury where many times the LCL or the biceps femoris is avulsed off, it is better to try to get in as soon as possible because many times you can just um, sort of repair the biceps down to the fibular head pretty, pretty easily if there hasn't been too much scarring. So if someone is in that scenario, you may kind of just stage things where you do whatever is avulsed off uh, in the more acute setting. And then you do your reconstructive stuff like ACL in a delayed fashion. So that's how I would approach, approach it. If something is avulsed, try to do it as quickly as possible. Uh, if something is not avulsed, you can wait a few, a few weeks. Um, in terms of actually doing the reconstruction, I tend to do most of my ACLs with some kind of autographs, usually a BTB autographed, and then you do allografts for the PCL pretty much, and um, the LCL as well if you have to do that, or the MCL too if you have to reconstruct the uh, MCLs. And um, the recovery uh, depends on what you do, of course, but um, I, I actually do allow them to weight bear after surgery, uh, but Importantly, I have them in extension when they weight bear um, initially because a lot of their quad function is not strong enough. So uh, I, I find that after surgery, if you don't allow a patient to weight bear at all after any kind of arthroscopic surgery or any kind of reconstructive procedure, they, they tend to really shut down their knee very quickly, and that can be hard to recover from. So just putting some weight in the leg is very helpful and kind of proprioception and getting the knee kind of um, 
recovered back from any kind of surgery. So uh, initially weight bearing is tolerated uh, in extension or toe touch weight bearing uh, if they're really uncomfortable or if it's very uh, extensive. And then the first several weeks are just getting your range of motion back. So gentle flexion for the first several weeks. Um, and then kind of progress from there from uh, range of motion and uh, working on gentle straight leg raises and strengthening quads and hamstrings. And, um, you know, you're looking at a timeline of six to nine months, basically, until you have uh, full recovery uh, and return to your sport. Um, and I think nowadays it's good to have objective measures when you do recovery for um, these reconstructive procedures. Uh, there are a lot of kind of return to sports testings that a lot of uh, good physical therapists have. I would say physical therapy is sort of the key to a lot of the surgeries that we do in sports. So uh, having good physical therapy um, at your disposal can go a long way for your surgery uh, and uh, can make any surgeon look good with uh, good physical therapy, I would say. Man, I think that was perfect. I think that's, um, yeah, I think that, that's, that thing we didn't cover, covered everything. I think that was great right there. Um, do you have anything else that you would kind of like to add about, you know, or earn any parting words for any of the listeners here that are uh, thinking or, or that are residents that have their next knee dislocation that will be coming into the OR tomorrow that you kind of want to impart on them? I would just say it's uh remember it's a trauma. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's, and think of the whole individual, uh, not just the knee. I know as orthos, we care about the bones and joints and uh, muscles, but you know, it's take the whole person into account, you know, their mechanism, making sure they have no other big injuries. You don't want to miss any other injuries uh, because you're distracted by the knee dislocation. So uh, just take it all in and, uh, think through everything and just remember um, to check pulses and neurovascular exam and um, take good care of the patient. All right. Sounds good, Dr. Williams. Last thing before we, before we sign off, we always give our uh, speaker a chance to let our listeners know how to reach them. If they want to uh, want to give that out, it may be some kind of social media, uh, some kind of uh, work uh, email or anything like that. Do you have any kind of way for our listeners to reach out to you if they would like to, sir? Sure. I'm on uh, Instagram, uh, Philip Williams, MD, two L's and Philip, uh, one word, Philip Williams, MD, uh, can reach out to me there. I have my, my work number on, on my profile there too. So, uh, I guess that's the easiest way to do it. Thank you all so much for listening to that episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast talking about our multi-ligamentous knee injuries with Dr. Williams. We really appreciate you guys listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, feel free to send us a message or reach out to us at naileditortho at gmail.com or on Instagram. And please do not forget to subscribe. And we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>